welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me on the other end of the line is my mother and co-host, Caroline Kilborn. And hello, everyone. I hope you're having a good day today. And it's very nice here. It's very nice here, too. So Caroline's in Iowa. I'm in Texas. And we'll find out where our guest is and who our guest is. Who is our guest today, Mom? Today, our, our guest is Mary Moreland. And the book is The Gap Between, a Loving and Supporting Someone with Alzheimer's. And there is a, which is to say a wealth of information in this book is pretty mildly. <laughs> but anyway, a little bit about the author. Um, she is a lawyer and a single parent of two teenage sons, and she graduated uh, cum laude from Washington M.D. University and Tulane University School of Law, where she learned both her law degree and a certificate in maritime law, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> she, is <dedicated. laughs> she is dedicated to serving youth in her home state, and something that I found extremely interesting, she is an um, advocate for the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights, acting as a friend and liaison for children who would otherwise be navigating the immigration process alone. And also in this book are poems that uh, were written by her mother, who uh, she has written this, the book about, uh, who had Alzheimer's, and that's a great contribution to the book. The poems are lovely. So anyway, welcome to Water's Voices, Mary. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Monica and Caroline, I really am so excited to be here, and I appreciate the nice introduction. And Monica, I am also in Texas. Okay, so you're in Houston? Yes, I'm in Houston. And the other thing I'll say is, Caroline, I don't know if everyone would agree that the Certificate in Maritime Law is really interesting. <laughs> what? Well, <laughs> let me just ask, what drew you to to Maritime Law, and did you ever practice in it? Well, just briefly, uh, after I graduated from college, I moved to New York City because I was so excited. I just wanted to live in New York City, and the only job I could find was as a marine insurance adjuster uh, <laughs> for ships. And somehow I convinced these people that I really wanted to be a marine in insurance adjuster, which I think at the time I did. I mean, it sounded kind of interesting. And this and, was, uh, you were an I attorney then? You were already an attorney? No, this no, was okay. before law school. Okay. And that actually led to me becoming an attorney because I started working with maritime attorneys. And oh. one of them, who is my mentor, said, Mary, have you ever thought about law school? You know, you should do maritime law, which I don't really have lawyers in my immediate family. So I was like, uh, I don't know about that. But but that is what brought me to maritime law. Tulane has an excellent program for it. And ironically, I never practiced maritime law. Uh, but when that ship was stuck, you remember a few years ago, there was a large ship stuck, I think, in the Suez Canal. Oh, yeah. And it yeah. Caused, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely not going to go into the weeds on that, but in the news, they mentioned all these marine insurance terms, and I was ah. like, I know it. <laughs> I, like, I actually know what you're talking about. The one time, you know, it came in handy for conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you didn't go into practicing. Did you go right into family law at that point, or? Well, 
No, you know, um, I actually started out in a trial section uh, doing commercial law. And I was, I did not like speaking in front of the court. Uh, and I didn't enjoy the deposition process. And I really didn't enjoy the discovery process. So I switched to transactional law, kind of negotiating deals. And 90% of what I've worked on has been outside the U.S. So oh. I've always been internationally focused, mostly in Latin America. Interesting. Um, and I've just kind of different opportunities have, I've been just so fortunate, have come my way. And uh, I've just kind of rolled with it. And now I'm actually in a business role uh, where I work. Well, congratulations. Just, I think as long as you <laughs> as you remain open to opportunities in your life, and even though sometimes I thought, wow, I don't know if I can really do this, like with the book, for example, um, you know, if you just push through and keep telling yourself, yes, this is something I can do and use positive affirmations, I think you can do it. So what about writing this book? was so was so challenging for you? Well, it's interesting to me because when I've been introduced at different events, I've heard people say, Mary kept a log of everything that was going on with her mother during the decade that, almost a decade that she was her mom's caretaker. And I just have, <laughs> kind of gone with that. But the truth is, I didn't intend to write a book. Um, my mother, I put her on hospice during COVID. And really, everyone remembers COVID. You were isolated. You were at home. I was at home with my two teenage sons. And I just felt like I didn't really have a lot of people to talk to. And I think a lot of times if you're taking care of a sick relative, you know, the out of town relatives are calling to talk to you, but they want to hear about their loved one, not necessarily about how are you dealing with this or are you okay, which is very natural. I, I do the same thing. And someone suggested to me that I start keeping a journal. So I started keeping a journal and then I showed what I had written um, to that person who said, you know, this could actually be very helpful for someone. And I remember his exact words were something like, you have a definite voice and point of view, which I was like, wow, that's such a compliment. You know, I have a voice and I have a point of view. And I said, you know, I'm not a writer. Uh, I've never written. I, I don't sit around at home you know, writing short stories. And he said, you know, Mary, you're a lawyer. So you actually have been writing, you know, you've been a lawyer for 25 years. So you actually have been writing for 25 years. So I thought, you know, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll take it on as a challenge and just see, you know, if that's something I could do. And also I needed, I don't mean to sound flippant, but I really needed a hobby. <laughs> I was just at home, you know. Um, so I started writing and I, I just really enjoyed it. And then the more I got into writing, um, you know, just kind of the more ideas came into my head. And 
Um, I, I actually originally wrote the book in chronological order, but then my editor said, you know, I don't know if chronological order really works because you're kind of talking about different themes at different parts in the book. And it seems kind of confusing, like, maybe you should reorganize it and think of themes. Um, and so that's how the book ended up in its current format, which is every chapter has a certain theme, like diagnosis or legal documentation or end of life, uh, caregiving. And then there's a memoir section within each chapter about that theme, which talks about kind of the actual reality of what our life was like, how we dealt with certain problems. Like, how did you take away the car keys? Like, you know, my mother really didn't want to have any stranger in her home. You know, how did you deal with that? And then there's a tip section, which is a researched section. And then as Caroline mentioned, I put a poem of my mother's in between each chapter because I thought, you know, there are a lot of books that talk about, you know, the story of me and my loved one with dementia. And I haven't read all those books, but the ones that I've looked at, you kind of get to know the the narrator and you kind of get to know the person as that person was with dementia, but you don't really get to see what that person was like before his or her mind started deteriorating. And my mom was a, you know, great writer. She won some literary awards. She was published in a few literary magazines. And I thought by including them, it really, the juxtaposition of the poems, which are very thoughtful, and then the memoir section about the same person not having the abilities that she used to have, I thought that that was really powerful. And that collection of poems, almost all of them, were taken from a collection that she had actually put together herself that we found while cleaning out her home. And I don't know if she had tried to get those published herself. She was always sending different writings off, you know, trying to get things published as, as people do, right? And, but I felt like, wow, it, it's almost like we wrote the book together and there are things that she, most of those that she had picked out herself. And I, and I think somehow the poems really match up with the chapters. Wow. When you're, um, well, they do. Yes. <laughs> you wrote that your mother was, um, a winner of the Iowa review contest, a judge for Penn Southwest fiction contest, widely published poet, and that she kept but that she often did not tell anyone when she published. I find that interesting. Did you, so do you know why did you ever talk to her about that? You know, uh, I, I, I think I do know why, and maybe it's not very flattering uh, for me, <laughs> but you know, a lot of her writing, it's very, uh, what's the word? Like mature, you know, the themes are very kind of, and she would have things published and you, you wouldn't hear about it. Um, and so one time I did ask her, you know, I said, I, I would love to read 
some of your writings or know more if you do have something published, that would be great. And she was also very kind of humble. You know, she wasn't somebody who, if she published something, would be telling everyone. She would keep it to herself. And so occasionally she would leave things out on her desk. And I would go in her office and then, I mean, it was, I think it was an invitation to read. But I think at that age, because I was quite young, I really didn't understand, you know, everything that she was writing. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of dealt with the stage of my life that I just wasn't really mature enough to understand. And so that had to be a little frustrating for her. You know, <laughs> like, like, did you read what I left for you? It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't uh, get it. <laughs> but I really didn't understand it. But now, you know, I read her poems and I completely get it. And a lot of them are mm -hmm. about her own mother and just, you know, the relationship with your mother and just different struggles in life that you may have. And Actually, she had an aunt who she would send, every time she was published, she would send what was published to this aunt. And when she passed away, the aunt actually sent us a box of, of everything that had been sent to her. Oh, but these wow. poems were found, you know, in a closet and her office just kind of grouped together. And these had not been published before, these ones that are in the book, or some of them had? There are a couple of them that have, and those are noted, but the bulk of them had not. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And you also wrote that she continued writing short stories even after she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Do you have any of those stories and were they complete? You know, um, I think I have a sibling who may have some of those. I know she she was writing one very much in, when she was into her Alzheimer's called Rude, um, <laughs> which had to do with something a note that someone left for her that she did not like. And so she was writing this short story about it. And I did read that. Uh, and it wasn't quite finished, mm. uh, which I thought was really funny. You know? uh, and then she also always used to keep everywhere these little books, uh, like little notebooks. And when she would think of an idea, you know, you can just tell you look in her little notebook and I do have some of those, and those are really fascinating to look at just from an Alzheimer's point of view because, you know, you look at some of the booklets and, you know, kind of the ideas are more complete and it's sort of, you know, a phrase or something at the beginning. Like I want to, you can tell she was thinking, I want to kind of explore this. And then in other booklets or later on in the booklet, it's really much less coherent. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I did keep a lot of those and every once in a while I pull them and I, I don't know why I just kind of look at them. Interesting. But that's that, that whole thing scenario is common with Alzheimer's, isn't it? There's times of really when they, you know, they can remember things they're with it. And then other times it's just all lost. That, that's what's so 
uh, amazing and frustrating, I'm sure, about that disease. Yeah, no, Caroline, I completely agree with you. And and that was something that I always struggled with. I, I think there are a lot of people who, well, first, let's say we all know someone with Alzheimer's or some form of dementia, or we know someone caring for someone with Alzheimer's or a form of dementia. And I think some of those people are able just to accept kind of that moment of lucidity and just be happy for it and kind of let it go and just think, oh, I'm so happy we had that moment where, you know, she remembered this great day we had together. I was never, mm -hmm. ever able to do that. Whenever she had any type of moment of lucidity, I just thought, I, I maybe it's ego, right? Like, if I just ask her enough questions and if I just keep talking to her, she's gonna, it's going to click. Like, she had that moment of lucidity. Her mind, it's there somewhere. And so I would just start mm -hmm. asking her a whole lot of questions, which with my lawyer background was probably not very fun for her. <laughs> you started interrogating but, her. <laughs> I started in a nice voice, but yet an interrogation. And eventually she always agreed, you know, with what I said, that's right. You know, and I think that she just did that so that I would like, oh. Shut Stop. up, you know? <laughs> Stop. Yeah. But, and I, and yeah. I told her doctor, you know, I think she has these moments where like she's in there. She's got to be in there. And he would tell me, you know, Mary, that's just not how this disease works. She's never going to have, you know, once it's gone, it's gone. Alzheimer's takes, it never returns. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Mary Moreland, author of The Gap Between Loving and Supporting Someone with Alzheimer's. Okay, well, what I wanted to say was my mother had senile dementia. And, okay. Um, when I would visit her in the nursing home, um, I'm not sure she knew who I was, but she knew I was someone she should know. That's what That was the feeling I got. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, I wasn't like I, I was a complete stranger, but she wasn't quite sure who I was. But, um, I, I do know this. She, uh, when, before she got this, she, all her life, she prayed for people. People would ask her for prayer. And, and I'm sure that somewhere in that faithful mind, she was praying. And I, I kept that thought. Well, that's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for, for sharing that. And, and I know exactly how that felt because for the bulk of my mother's disease, I, like you, Caroline, I did feel like she didn't know who I was, but she knew I was one of her people. Mm -hmm. And in fact, for a while, she would just refer to me as the nice lady. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, there's that nice lady. You oh. know, I like you, nice lady. You're a nice lady. Uh, until really way at the end of her disease, I I don't think she really knew, you know, that I was the nice lady. She certainly didn't know I was the nice lady, but I don't know if she recognized, like, I was kind of one of her people. And then on her deathbed, she just stared at me so intently. Um, and of course, since it was COVID, you know, well, I was incredibly grateful that I got to be with her because a lot of people oh, did not. Right. And I cannot imagine how painful that must have been. 
And since I got to be there, there were, you know, it was limited. Everyone couldn't be there, but I could be there with a cell phone. And I know that when she heard certain voices, um, you know, there was something about the tone of the voice that, that spoke to her. You know, you could just mm-hmm. tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sorry to hear about yeah. your mom, uh, Caroline, and your grandmother, Monica. Yeah. yeah. I assume that's your grandmother. <laughs> that is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because it is just, no matter what type of dementia it is, it, it's just really hard. In yeah. some ways, there seems to be more of a fear of Alzheimer's than any other kind of dementia. I don't really understand the distinction between them. Um, and so I think that, I think it'd be fair to say that this book is just as applicable to someone who's caring for a loved one with some other type of dementia other than Alzheimer's. Yes. Yes, it is. And just in case anyone listening, uh, doesn't know, dementia is kind of like the broad umbrella and Alzheimer's is a particular type of dementia but it's the most common form of dementia. And it is true. You never hear people talking about, well, you do, but not as often talking about dementia in general, but you frequently hear people talking about Alzheimer's. Yeah. And there's a lot of fear. That is, I mean, I have that fear myself, you know, and I think every, I don't don't know if you all do, since you have some (laughs) form of dementia in your family, do you? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, Mom, I think it'd be fair to say that you've always been concerned that, about it. And not just oh, yeah. her mother, but almost all of her mother's siblings, um, had dementia late. Like, yeah. there were nine of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was, it yeah. my, went, one of the uncles, one of my aunt's husbands, uh, thought that it was the water they drank when they were growing up. Oh. They were farm and kids. They drank on the farm. You know, Iowa farm mm-hmm. kids. They also, you know, cooked with aluminum pots and pans. Um, so there was a lot of chemicals in the water, and then there was, you know, that uh, the aluminum pans. Don't know if that made a difference, but I don't know. You do hear that. There's yeah. so many things. I mean, you can make yourself crazy uh, googling what causes dementia yeah. because you can find some really kooky things doing that. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you can. Yeah, like, like anything else in this world. Yeah, yes. Today, like <laughs> picking your nose. That was one recently that was in <laughs> in the news, but but I read that that was not true. So you can pick your nose, you know, or smelling peanut butter. If you smell peanut butter out of one nostril or another, oh, you got to there's be so kidding. Many, Yes, there there are just so many odd theories, and I I'm not a medical professional, but from what I understand, they still don't know exactly why some people get it and why some people don't. Right. <clears throat> wow. Yeah, but I do hear a lot nowadays about lifestyle. Um, how I guess there is a thought that your lifestyle may contribute to it, and uh, I went to an Alzheimer's Association event and. You know, they said exercise and 
eating a colorful plate, getting a lot of sleep. I mean, they have a lot of recommendations on their website for different lifestyle changes. But I mean, that's for every aspect of health, isn't it? I know, right? (laughs) And yet it can be so hard to do. (laughs) I was just thinking that because after I went to that Alzheimer's event, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to exercise five days a week and I'm really going to do cardio you know, 30 minutes, and that's just very hard to do in practice. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, but the truth is that a lot of people, I mean, like my grandmother grew up very active, you know, farm, on the farm. She was always active. She did a lot of gardening, a lot of farm, you know, a lot of outdoor activity, and she didn't exercise per se, but she, I mean, I remember, I can remember her, you know, lifting bags of mulch and stuff in her when she was well into her 60s which I do too and um and now that I'm into my 60s you know, and um <laughs> but she was she was fit really in a lot of ways yeah she was yeah. she was yeah but um it yeah. didn't well, seem to help but. yeah so uh so was my mother you know she could she could have outrun me in a race at some point when she was in her fifties. I mean, she was lifting weight. She was putting flax in her cereal. I mean, one time, and I adore her. I love her, but she did bring me her fat pants. You know? Oh no! Oh no! And I, yeah, and I say, you know, I love you so much, but I do not want your fat pants. So just take your black fat pants and leave. You know. <laughs> Oh my, goodness. oh my goodness. But it was done with love. It was yeah. done with love, right? Yeah. So so let's talk a little bit more about the content of the book um and some of the some of the information that you have because the stories about your mother are are you know wonderful, heartbreaking. Um her poems are beautiful, but there's also a lot of just information about somebody dealing with with oh, a loved one with Alzheimer's. Let's just start with the stages of Alzheimer's and what you learned about each stage. Well, uh, first, uh, I'll say there is a lot of information, and I did spend a lot of time uh, thinking about what information to include and what themes would have been helpful for me, things that would have been helpful for me to know. Uh, and that is how I came up with the themes, because I thought, what would the younger Mary Moreland like what would be very helpful for her at the beginning of the journey? And, uh-huh. you know, about when she was originally diagnosed, I was very uh, focused on what stage she was in. I, I don't know why I was, but I kept reading everything I could get my hands on about stages of Alzheimer's because I kind of thought they kind of went in a chronological order And it was, this happens, maybe it's my kind of lawyer brain taking over. You know, this happens, and that's at the beginning stage, and then the next stage is like this, and then the next stage is like that. But really, it doesn't work that way. You can have, depending upon the person, like some things at the early stage that different people have at a later stage. I mean, they're much. it's much more fluid than that. And I don't think, I know I had read about the very late stage when, you know, someone can't walk or can't speak or, 
you know, can't swallow. I never really, I mean, it's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to actually see it. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't know. You guys may have had that experience in your life too. Well, I, I, my mom was finally mainly in a wheelchair, but, uh, yeah, it's, and, and she had some trouble eating too, but, but a feeding tube was not, uh, not possible. She, she had, she had written a letter, um, that, uh, I showed the doctor and she, she had said she did not want a feeding tube. So that was in her, in her lucid periods before she got, you know, before mm-hmm. she got the dementia. So, so that was, that was a decision that, that was made. And so, so she didn't have that, but yeah, see, that's the thing. It, oh gosh. And that this book has so many details about, well, this, the, the medical, the medical field and insurance and all of that. I mean, that's, that's what's so daunting to me that it's just so complicated. And it's amazing that you've got through all that. Well, the, the medical is very complicated and, you know, there is long-term care insurance that you can buy, but from what I can tell from people I'm talking to, hardly anyone has it because it's incredibly expensive now. And the coverage that's offered, you know, isn't as, as much as it used to be before, you know, like 30 years ago. And I think a lot of people assume Medicare is going to pay for some of the care, but it's very, very limited. And caring for someone with dementia is incredibly expensive. So I, that's, I, I did try to include things in the book. Like, you know, I asked everyone I saw, how are you affording this? You know, what are you doing to afford it? And so in the book, I tried to include just ideas that I had gotten from other people. What I wish I had included, which I didn't know until recently, because I was speaking with an elder law lawyer and a lot of people will consider selling their homes to pay for their loved one's care. But if you have certain federal benefits, if you sell the family home, that can have an impact on those benefits. So before you do that, I, I now every time I mention, I mentioned paying for care, I always mention this because I didn't know it. So if you're on some type of assistance, you should look in, look into that. Um, because oh, gosh. The, you know, that's it, one of those things you just don't think about, you know? No, you don't think about that at all. Who's, I mean, who's thinking about these things when your loved one is not doing well and you're dealing with watching someone deteriorate who you love? You is know? that because yeah. the home yeah. is sort of not counted as an asset for, for eligibility for different things, but if you convert it to cash, then it is, and then you're no longer eligible? That don't quote me, but I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of little things like that that um, they—it's just hard to know until you're yes. there. Yes. Yeah, and that's another thing. I discovered some things. You know, maybe it, maybe now. I mean, I started caring for my mom in 2012. She passed away in 2020. Maybe now the flow of information is a little bit better. But there were so many things I didn't know about or I didn't think of, like, you know, having physical therapy under her Medicare. Uh, that was a 
that was with her insurance that happened to be fully covered. And that was a very nice thing for her, uh, just to kind of keep her a little bit healthier. And it was also, you know, another instance of interaction, you know, with people. A friend of mine told me under her insurance, there was some type of bath lady that she qualified for. Uh, and so a she, bath lady. she really needed a break. <laughs> yeah. And she said, when I need a break, cause I said, what do you do? You know, that's the other thing, caregivers taking care of themselves. So yeah. how do you do yeah, that? What do you exactly. do? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so anyway, things like that, I tried to include in the book cause I really was thinking of, okay, Mary in 2012, like, what do you want to tell her? Mm. And you went through mm-hmm. a lot of different types of care. Um, do you want to sort of yes. just walk us through the progression yeah. of yeah. the of the types of care? Yeah. Uh, yes. So initially, my dad was the primary caregiver, and you know when he was, we had discussed kind of what her care might look like, um, and how we thought we might manage that. And I knew, I always knew I'll be stepping into those shoes. I didn't know when, uh, but he was caring for her, you know, but then one day he passed away unexpectedly. And then in that moment, you know, okay, all of a sudden the torch has been passed and now I'm the main, I'm the main guy. <laughs> uh, and we were living in different homes, you know, she and my father lived in a home and I lived in a home with my children. And so initially I thought, well, maybe I'll move in with her, you know, maybe she'll move in with us. Like, how are we going to do this? And we started out with people coming to her home, which since she had this really great long-term care insurance, which I would love to go back to her and say, you know, all of that stuff that you purchased, like, was so, like, you really got a lot of money <laughs> from that insurance company. And I know she would be happy about that because she must have really researched it. But we started with people coming to our house just a few hours, not every day, you know, because she didn't need that level of care. And she was very resistant to that because she didn't know these people, she didn't want people should know in her home. And then gradually, you know, she kind of got used to that. Um, and, you know, in the book, I kind of go through just sort of how that happened. How did she become more accustomed to that? And then we started adding hours uh, as her disease progressed. And then eventually you need 24-hour care, you know, or your loved one needs 24-hour care because you don't know if they're going to wander and then just practical things come up like eating. You know, if, if you, you, you can't, I mean, it sounds like you can't let the person cook unless you're there supervising. And I don't even know, you know, at a certain point, even that's not safe. So, you know, what is she going to eat? Like, um, and so finally when we went to 24 hour care, I, was supplementing with an agency. And I, I think the agency was a very fine agency, but for me, I, I didn't really like that because, you know, I would think one person's coming to the house and I know that one person 
but then that person gets sick and then all of a sudden like somebody else is there and you know, what are you guys going to do? And then I mentioned in the book, there was this one person who just ate nuts all the time. And it was this huge deal with me and my mother because (laughs) the nuts were loud, you know, and she kept telling me like, do something about the nuts. Like these nuts, this woman, she's like chewing the nuts, you know? And so I said, mom, it, it really, it just can't be that bad. You know, is it that bad? Really? So I came over to observe Somehow the nuts, you know, which was like, oh, anyone want a snack? You know, oh, like, I think I'll have some nuts, you know? And and it was, it was incredible. Like, I don't know, it was like an echo chamber in her mouth. I mean, it was very loud. And so I had to have a very awkward discussion about the nuts, you know? Um, yeah. But... But when we got to that, it and it, it's also incredibly expensive to have 24-hour care. Oh, I mean, for sure. Really expensive. And she needed more social interaction. You know, I the people I still keep in touch with the people who helped us. You know, uh, I mean, they're I feel like they're an important, you know, part of our kind of family network because they they loved my mother, and they were very helpful to me. Um, but even with them, she needed more social interaction and it was very expensive and I was worried about the quality of the food and it got to a point where I just felt like I can't manage, like it, it's just gotten to be a lot. But one thing my dad and I had always said was we're never moving her out of her home. Like she will always be in her home. So I felt this really awful internal conflict because it's like, well, I promised she would always be in her home, but then I'm, I'm looking at the situation and I don't know if we really understood if the home is the best place for her or if, if I can really balance all these goals in the air. And I had a conversation with her doctor, you know, who said, you may just need to move her to a, to a facility like uh, assisted living. And um, because the last thing you want is for you to start becoming resentful towards her. And mm-hmm. he said, mm-hmm. you know, that's something, you know, that could happen. So you should think about that. And so as a family, you know, we did think about that, which it's always a little difficult kind of, you know, kind of getting everybody on the same page, I guess. But once she moved into an assisted care facility, honestly, she was a lot happier. She had friends. She ate, you know, with people. She always had good food. You know, she they had exercise classes. They had vocabulary classes. They had games. And she really enjoyed all of that. I mean, she took, you know, full advantage. Um, and then... In that long-term, in that assisted living facility, they had different levels of care for people. So eventually she moved to the memory care floor. Um, mm-hmm. And that was where she passed away. I was wondering the difference between pall- palliative care and hospice. Those are the two things that I'm wondering. You know, what is, what's the difference between those two things? So... Um, the basic difference is palliative care is caring 
you know, for someone, but you're still maintaining like their medication, you know, um, it, it may not be covered by Medicare. That's a difference. It's very similar to hospice. Uh, hospice is when you have like a terminal disease, but a key yeah. difference between the two is, for example, my mom was taking Aricept. I think with palliative care, she probably would have still, you know, have been taking that. But on hospice, you kind of take the person off of medication uh-huh. that's not curing them, you know? Okay. And okay. one misconception I had about hospice, and it's been, to be honest, Caroline, it's been a while since I've thought about it, and I wish I could, like, I wish I had read my chapter, you know, my pages about that before you asked me that question. But I will say one misconception I had was I always thought hospice was only when you're on death's door, you know, when death is. Yeah. Yeah. But what I learned was that with Alzheimer's, you can actually qualify for hospice uh, before that. And in oh. fact, a lot of people who lived on her floor had been on hospice for a while, which no one ever told me. Mm. And I never thought, I just had this idea. I never thought to um, inquire about that. But when hospice finally came in, I mean, in some ways I felt kind of guilty because they were like, oh, we have these things for her to grip. And they're very helpful for people with dementia because they start gripping really hard. And so we'll do that. And by the way, there's a different type of wheelchair that would be really good for her and it's going to be covered. So let us just handle that for you and we'll bring that in. Oh, and her bed, you know, there's this other type of bed and, you know, we think maybe we can, you know, handle that too. And they just came in with so much knowledge and advice and hospice is also not only for the person who's ill, but it's also for the, the others too. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And, they were very helpful to me because I, I, well, I'm not going to say everyone, but really people I've been very close to when they pass, they've just kind of passed, you know, I had never had that experience of, you know, this Watching person someone is probably die. not going <laughs> to make it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And the hospice workers have, and they know how to, yes, how to, deal with that and how to help people through that. That's a really, you know, yeah. working for hospice is a real calling, I think, and very oh, yeah. admirable. It's, yeah. yeah, because I didn't recognize, you know, she stopped eating, she stopped drinking. You know, I, I didn't really understand what was going on with the body and, uh, and well, I won't, that's, Anyway, I'll keep some things about, you know, her <laughs> right. last few days private, right? Yeah. But uh, but they were very helpful and kind of explaining to me what was going on, you know, what to expect, how to make her most comfortable. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't know. I really, the hospice company that we use, they were just great. I was feel fortunate to have found them. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Mary Moreland, author of The Gap Between Loving and Supporting Someone with Alzheimer's. And before we run out of time, Mary, could you read a little bit from the book for us? Uh, Yes. 
I would love to. And I picked um, something. I, I guess I didn't know how appropriate this would be because we've been talking about end of life, but I had actually picked something to read toward the end of the book uh, because another thing I found looking for books was, at least for me, I didn't find a lot of books that talked about the end. I found a lot of books about the dementia process, the stages, what happens, communication, all of that. But I didn't find a lot of books that really went there to the end of life. So this is chapter 13. It's called When Caregiving Ends. Um, I've been looking at pictures all morning, comparing the pictures to the one I swiped from mom's room of her and my dad on the way out. I see how much she had deteriorated. To me, it was a slow bit-by-bit -bit deterioration, and I was happy for every little salvageable bit of my mother. It was her time, I know, but selfishly, there was comfort for me in visiting her and knowing she was still around. I see objectively that she had no life. She would not have wanted to live this way, but I just liked being around her, even if she had no idea who I was. I moved her just down the street from me so that I could hop on over any time I liked. Honestly, I liked taking care of her. I often felt overwhelmed, but I loved her so. I felt needed. I was important. Being a caregiver of my children and my mother has defined me. It has been my main purpose in life. I was the meat of the sandwich. I did important things. I went to the store to get dinner for my kids, and I automatically thought, okay, is there anything mom needs? I was her primary caregiver for close to a decade. I was part of the sandwich generation. Now I am no longer. There is no open face sandwich generation. Just like that, I am no longer in the sandwich generation. I am now just a single parent with teenage kids who are going off to college in a couple of years. Other generations are for life. Baby boomers, Generation X, Millennials, Generation Z. The sandwich generation defines you until it does not. I worried about her all the time. She was my third child, not the mother of my youth, but Jane, who had Alzheimer's, was my child. I'm still worrying about her. She's gone. How do I stop worrying? What is my life? What is the relationship I had with my mother? There were several. What is my relationship with mom, grandma Jane, Jane, baby Jane? They are all my mother. I'm concerned for myself. This was part of my identity. I took care of all matters, mom. I feel lost. Her room was the last little bit of my former life. The painting of Mexican fishing boats above her bed, the pictures of baby grandchildren who are now adults, the monarch butterfly needlepoint pillow she made, the sunflower blanket I wrapped myself in for the last few days while sitting in the salmon colored chair until I tucked her into bed. It was a safe place from the past. Now I will need to dismantle it, just like I did their home. The final goodbye of my youth. It's just all gone, except for the memories in my head. Mom was my purpose. She was important to me as my children. Everyone else went on with life. A visit, a lunch with Jane. But she was my purpose. My goal was to care for her, to make her happy and comfortable, to make sure she had what she needed. I felt good being the caretaker. I love taking care of others. It just fits. It's gone. I miss her so much, and it's over. At times, I resented the responsibility, but then I remembered the trust placed in me 
and be appreciative for the love it took to put a child in charge of your life and well-being. What a compliment. I'm floored. However, I need some skills for how to move forward. The training may have included, this is what we want, here is what is important to me, but it did not include how you deal with life after being responsible for another. How do I take care of myself? I don't think I have those skills yet. I must and will acquire them. I think I mourned each loss of her abilities, but never the loss of the whole person. Looking at pictures, I had forgotten what she really looked like. She was so elegant and beautiful, always so put together. Lipstick, hair, clothes, so stylish. I think I initially was sad for everything she could no longer do. But at the end, I was so thankful for anything she could do, including when she made eye contact with me. I wish I had looked at more pictures throughout her disease to remember how she was. I had forgotten. I was just so in the day-to-day of life that I never looked at the big picture and appreciated all of the changes. Maybe this is why I feel so bad. I remember the last school event she attended, the way people reacted to her, her obvious discomfort, I thought maybe at the end she would have a moment of lucidity, but of course she did not. Her doctor told me she would not, but I just did not accept it. I see that it was her time, but I just feel so sad, angry at the disease, and just like I want to go back in time. I want my mom, but how silly. For eight and a half years, I've been watching her slip away. Of course she is not there. Some of those years just seem like a blur. Did I do the best I could? She should have had an organized closet and a color-coded wardrobe. I was so sad about the limitations early on. But now that I've seen the end, those were the good times. I wish I had appreciated them more. I wish I had appreciated her more. Before she died, I thanked her for everything. Since I was the lamp, I heard many others thank her too. Why didn't we thank her earlier? Maybe they did, but I did not. I read and was told by learned people, priests and psychiatrists, that typically when a person living with dementia passes, family members feel a sense of relief. But this time, the fa- by this time, the family has witnessed the long deterioration of the person they once loved and is relieved for that person to be in a better place. I waited for my sense of relief, but all I felt was sadness, anger, and loss. Where is my sense of relief? I was counting on the sense of relief. It is nowhere. I want my sense of relief. Not only did Alzheimer's rob me of a sense of lucidity before passing, it seems there is also no sense of relief. Alzheimer's stole that too. Alzheimer's is a thief. I read in my books how people felt the person at the end was not the person before the disease. But I never thought that. She was always my mother. Her essence was always the same. She was just ill. That was not her fault. She wasn't exactly my mother, but she was there, in there somewhere, I thought. She had the same elegant hands. She was the same physical person. Or maybe the changes happened so gradually that I just lost my perspective. Or maybe I just did not want to see it. I have watched this, participated in it for close to a decade. Why am I so shocked? No more sandwich generation just like that. One side of the bread is gone, the other is being eaten away, and soon will be gone. There is no open-faced sandwich generation. There is no meat generation. The list of things to do is shorter. Maybe that's the relief people refer to. 
Is it, was it selfish to want her around, even though she would have no quality of life, just so I could go and visit her? I, it is understandable, but I think it is selfish. It is true. She would not have wanted to continue living as she was. I just want my mom back, like she was in my pictures. That person has been gone for a while, but I always hoped she would reappear at least for a few minutes. Earlier in her disease, I could get her back with enough effort, or at least I thought I could. But that ability went away a long time ago. That was Mary Moreland reading from The Gap Between Loving and Supporting Someone with Alzheimer's. This whole thing is so complicated. I just, uh, you know, I don't know. And, but her, her, she, the bibliography that she has is very helpful in her book. I mean, she, she did a lot of research for this. This was not a, you know, <laughs> how long did it take you to, to write this? Did you already tell us that? No, you know, um, I mean, I actually wrote it in under a year. Well, that's not true because I, mm, let me think, because I started in the fall of 2020 and then it was published in the June of 2022. And I... You know, I, I had written it chronologically, like I said, but then I had mm -hmm. to go back and kind of put it by themes. And then I started doing more research and then I kind of got really into the research. So, so it, so from the time I started November 2020 to the time it was published, um, June of 2022. Well, that's actually pretty fast. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 It is fast. Yeah. yeah. I think because I had so much in my head and because I had been living this, you know, that, yeah. that when the spigot was open of, oh my gosh, like travel, you know, I remember that time when we took a trip and, you know, wow, what, what was that like? And what would I have liked to have known? I mean, it just kind of came out of me, which is probably very, you know, part of my own healing process. Uh, it was very cathartic. Yeah. And how did you find your mm -hmm. publisher? So I um, researched some publishers online. And uh, and honestly, I thought I would send it. I, I thought, okay, I've checked this box. I've written the, I wrote the book. I did it. You know, that was my <laughs> challenge. And then I'm going to send it off. And, you know, that's it. And I read about Brown Books. They have a much different business model than a lot of the publishers and I knew I'm a debut author. So I, you know, it's not like I'm going to go to one of the big <laughs> like houses and they're going to be happy to see me. Um, but I read about Brown and you actually get to keep your intellectual property, which since I was including my mom's poetry was important to me. And they had on their website, if, if you have an idea for a book, please call us first and we can, run it, you know, we can talk to you about it. And so I thought, well, okay. And it was actually spring break. I was on vacation with my kids in Austin. And so I called and I said, you know, I, I was about to submit something. And then I read this on your website. And, um, so I thought I'd call and talk to you. And so I kind of explained my idea and what I was writing and what I was getting out of it. And then they said, let me transfer you to someone else not really realizing that they were transferring me to Millie Brown of Brown. Um, <laughs> and so 
Yes, I ended up speaking with her for a while, and she's just so delightful. And she said, well, let me ask you, I, I like this. I like this idea. I like where you're going. How many words do you have? And, you know, so I'm like quickly looking at my computer, and I said, well, I have, I mean, this is so naive, like real, like people listening will probably laugh. I said, <laughs> I've, I had like, you know, I forgot how many words I had, like 10,000 words or 15,000. Like I didn't have enough. And she was like, you don't have a book. You know, you have a pamphlet. Um, but when do you think you'll have a book? Oh my God. Yeah. And, and I said, well, how many, you know, how many words do I need to have a book? And she told me, and I, and I don't know why I said this, but I said, you know, in three months I'll have a book. And she said, okay. Um, you know, I'm going to note that in my calendar. And so that was kind of my internal goal. And then I sent it thinking, okay, I sent it along. Uh, but then they called me and said, you know, we, we like your writing. It needs a lot of work, uh, which we would expect, you know, because you're a first time, but we could put you with an editor who could give you some constructive comment and, um, you know, but you know, but, and, and they actually don't mind working with first time authors, you know? Um, so, so that was it. Wow. Well, okay. That sounds like an easier path to publishing than a lot of people have. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Congratulations on that. Hey, sure. <laughs> yeah. No, no, definitely. Because I remember my mom sending stuff off and getting rejected all the time. Yeah. So I was kind of like, whoa. Wow. How did yeah. that happen? <laughs> but I think Alzheimer's is just such a topical. It is. You know, yeah, thing. it's an important yeah. thing. This is an important book. Very useful information. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your story with the world. Oh, yes. And oh, yes. we're we're out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> so, Mom, do you have some closing words for us? Well, I'm going to say the same thing you did, actually. I would advise everyone to have this book in your personal collection because it's a reference, it's a great reference with information and sources of sources about Alzheimer's and it, it, it Alzheimer's can impact any family. So you need to know about these things. So just get this book, okay? <laughs> well, thank you very much, Caroline, and thank you so much, Monica, for both of you for inviting me on your show and for your kind words and uh, I just really appreciate it. And, it and it's also been a lot of fun oh it has and uh, thank you and see you all next week on Writer's Voices <laughs>